There we go. Okay. Ready to go for another one. Yay. Um, this is going to be a shorter class than normal. I have to go over to Campus Square by noon, so I'm probably going to let you go about 20 up to quarter of about a half an hour early today. So sorry. No, no. I know. I know. Yay! Inside until I leave. So I have to run over there by about noon for a meeting, so I'm just going to go ahead and just cut the class short today. But we're doing pretty good. We're slightly behind, but not horribly behind right now, which is typical. I, we usually end up that, and then we'll catch up on certain other things. We do have some assignments coming up. Quiz 2, if you have not taken it yet, is available through today. So I did extend that through today. That'll cover the previous two chapters. Homework 2, I also is due today. Technically, if you've got it, turn it in. I'll be happy to take it. If you don't, I haven't covered everything on telescopes. I'll cover much more of it today. So if you want to turn it on Thursday, I won't take it. It won't be counted late. So if you don't have it done, if you're still working, if you don't want to look at it anymore, give it to me. I'll be happy to take it. But you can turn it in Thursday, and I'm not, not, won't be penalized as late or anything. I'll take that just the same. Article review is due on Friday. Again, if you're going to turn in a paper copy, you probably want to do it on Thursday. You know, bring it in class. But if you want, if you're going to email it to me or something, you can turn it in as late as the end of the day Friday, and there's no no late penalty on that. The first iTunes quiz is up, and that will be available all this week and is available through the 12th, through the end of the day Sunday. It is. 12 questions. It might tell you there's a time limit on it, but there isn't. So I turned off the time limit, but D2L works differently than WebCT used to. And you used to be able to say an untimed quiz in WebCT. You can't here. You have to give it an amount. So if it tells you you have 9,999 minutes to take it, you can still take even longer than that, and it won't penalize you. But I just put whatever big number I could put in there. But it, should, it won't penalize. Again, don't take five hours to do a 12-point quiz. It's not, worth, it's not worth your time. You're welcome to. That's your decision. But I wouldn't take that long. I mean, if you're, if you're taking more than a half an hour to an hour, you're probably spending more time than you really need to for the points that it's, points that it's worth. And then homework three. Yay! You haven't even done homework two yet, I know. Homework three is designed to get us back on schedule. So homework three is short. Homework 3 only covers one chapter. It covers the next unit. But it'll get us back on the due dates that I want. So it's actually it's due on the 17th, which is when it was originally due. But it only has five questions, and it only covers, <laughs> it only covers five chapters. So our next unit is actually five chapters worth. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. Although I don't ask you to read those five chapters. You're welcome to skim them, look at the summaries, and I'll go over some material. But essentially what it is is a quick unit on the planets. Oops, I'll take that. A quick unit on the planets, which is really covered in the 103 course. I do a little bit of it here. But essentially we'll go through about five chapters worth of the textbook in the equivalent of what we normally spend for a regular chapter. So I don't expect you to read all five chapters and know them in detail. I'll go over the high points as to what you need to, what you need to look at. Okay, I gotta put this down because. Okay, so that's what's coming. That's what's coming up. Do questions? No. Okay. Then we can start off with a picture for the day. It was an interesting one when I saw it. It's not something. I mean, I think I've seen it, but I've never really heard of it before. And this is what's called the Belt of Venus. 
There's nothing, there's, the sky's blank, you're not missing anything if you're not seeing in the sky, anything in the sky. You're not supposed to be seeing a star or a planet or anything big in the sky. What you're really looking at is you have the bluish sky up here and you have this belt right along the horizon opposite to where the sun would have been either just rising or just setting on the other side. And essentially what you're seeing is you're seeing part of the Earth's atmosphere, the higher part, is illuminated by the sun still, so it still looks blue like the sky normally looks. And part of it way down here is dark. That's still completely in shadow or has entered into shadow depending on whether it's sunrise or sunset. And it's completely dark and in between you sort of get this reddish belt on the other side. And that's what they call the, called the belt of Venus. Why? I didn't have a chance to look up actually why it, got that, why it got that name, unless it might have something to do with the fact that Venus being seen very, well, no, because that would be the other side of the sky. Never mind. Had one for a second, but it doesn't work because it would be on the other side of the sky. So maybe Venus is seen there, but it would, would, be, on, it would be closer to the sun. So I'm not, I'm not honestly sure why it is called that. But you, you may have seen this sort of a reddish band going around the edge of the edge of the horizon, especially if you have a very low horizon. Now, if you've got lots of trees and buildings in the way, it doesn't do much good because you're not going to see the horizon. You're not going to be able to see that. But that's actually what this band is. So sort of I had to do a look because I looked first at the picture and I was saying they're looking, okay, are they, I'm looking for Venus in the picture and I don't see any stars or anything in there. I don't see any kind of objects in the, in, the, in the picture at all. So I was unsure as to exactly what it was at the time. So I got to learn something new about the but an, about something in the sky today too as well. So, interesting little picture. Question? No? No? Okay. Let's go back to telescopes for a little bit then. I did that that was the moon was very nice last night. Very nice and nice and full. <laughs> in fact, I was where was I? I was driving somewhere at the time. It was either last night or the night before, one of the nights here I saw it. It was real or was it, you know what? No, I'm actually thinking this morning. I missed it last night. I saw it this morning. Opposite end of the sky, probably the same effect. Real big and real big on the horizon. Except I saw it as it was setting, not as you saw it as it was rising. I'm saying thing, I know I remember seeing it driving, but it was dark. And I don't remember being out in the dark last night. I was home. So it was this morning as I was coming into work that I saw it. But it was, it was a very beautiful, beautiful full moon. All right. Well, let's pick up here and get through as much of telescopes as we can. So we were looking at, we looked at the different types of telescopes. We'd seen reflecting telescopes, refracting telescopes. And a couple of them were shown up here. And what we have is a reflecting telescope uses a mirror. So it uses a mirror, reflects the light. The light is gathered by a large mirror here. That mirror can be a small telescope, can be four inches, four, six, eight inches in size, so relatively small. Large telescopes can be 10, 12 meters across, 10, 12 yards essentially, or you know, talking 30 or 40 feet across for large astronomical telescopes. can be gigantic. The, but the principle is still exactly the same. The big, large mirror here gathers the light, brings it up to a focus, and as we said, there's a prime focus up here. That's where, if you don't put anything there, that's where the light would naturally focus. Doesn't work very well with the night with a little telescope because if you put your head in the way, you're blocking all the light coming in. Now, when you're talking about a telescope dish that's the size of the room, 
doesn't matter so much if you're blocking a little bit of the light. And astronomers have a number of different ways of accessing the light. One way is to actually put a mirror in here to reflect the light out to an eyepiece, where you can then look or put an instrument there to be able to measure the light that's coming from that star. And there are a couple different ones we'll look at in a coming slide. The reflecting tele refracting telescope uses a lens. This is, what, this is the kind of telescope that Galileo would have used. So it had a lens here and a lens here, two lenses and a tube, and the light comes through, focused, and then into the eyepiece where you'd actually view the image. So either one of them works very well for astronomical image imaging. Each has their own issues. There are a lot of problems, and we'll talk about some of the problems with refracting telescopes, but they're not really used much anymore. The last large refracting telescope, again, is over 100 years, was built over 100 years ago. And that one was about, you know, telescope lens was probably about this big, about 40 inches across. So pretty good, I mean, good, good size lens. We could do a lot better now with modern technology than we did, you know, back in the 1890s when that one was built. But not going to become near to the size of the telescopes that I'll show you here shortly, some of the telescopes that we have now that are reflecting telescopes. And we'll look at some of the reasons for that. So why are they? Why are they all reflectors? And again, every modern telescope built in the last, what is it now, about 100 and, almost 115 years now has been a reflecting telescope. Well, there's a couple things that happen. First of all, what happens, what, remember what happens when light travels through a lens? We looked at the prisms in the last one, right? We split up the light. We liked it. It was good because we could split up and see the spectrum and learn more about the stars. Well, a lens does exactly the same thing to light. A lens is essentially a little prism on the top and a little prism on the bottom, and it bends the light differently depending on the wavelength. Which means that when you look at your image, If you have your lens, then you're going to have some light. Let's see, do I have a couple colors here? Red light is going to come through and get bent some amount to a focus. So you'll get a red focus. And do I have a blue? Yep. Blue light's going to get bent a little bit more. So as blue light comes through, it gets bent. to the blue focus. Not good, right? Where are you going to look? Are you going to look here? Or are you going to look here? If I look here, the red light's all nicely focused, but the blue has already been focused and is now diverging out again. It's coming out of focus. So if I look here, I'll see a nice red image with a bluish halo around it. If I look at this side, at the blue focus, I can focus in there, but then I'll get a reddish halo around my object that looks nice in the blue. Neither one of them is very good. So that's a big problem with refracting telescopes. It's something that astronomers have been able to minimize. You can sort of get rid of some of it. And by using multiple lenses that bend the light a little bit differently, but you can't get rid of it completely. So all of the telescopes do that. All of the refracting telescopes have that problem. And that's actually what is called, and give you the term for it on there, 
chromatic aberration. And really it's just an aberration, a problem with the telescope that is bending the light differently. So you'll, get, you'll have a red focus and you'll have a blue focus. Which one do you want to look at today? Well, each one's going to give you a halo around it. You'll see that same thing if you look at, if you buy or buy a cheap little, you know, $10 telescope, you know, a couple of lenses put together. There's nothing done in those to try to correct this, this aberration. And if you look at them, you'll see a nice image, but you'll get either a glow of red or a glow of blue around the image. It still works and you can see lots of things, but you can see that effect very easily. So that's one big problem with refracting telescopes. Second one is that the light has to travel through the lens. The bigger the telescope gets, the thicker the lens gets. You know, little tiny telescopes, the lens are real, real nice and thin, not very big. The bigger the telescope you get, this lens gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And when you start talking about telescopes that are, you know, lenses are getting this thick, a few inches thick, five, six inches thick, that's pretty big. Well, some of that light gets absorbed as it goes through. A mirror doesn't have that. Astronomical mirrors are different than the mirrors you're usually thinking of, right? Usually you think of a mirror, you think of a bathroom mirror. And it's got a piece of glass in front of it. Astronomical mirrors don't have that. They're just plain silver on a, on a surface. So essentially they get rid of that front piece of glass. Which is nice for a bathroom mirror because it makes it a lot easier to keep clean, but it adds extra issues in for astronomical observations. So you, don't, you get this. You get this issue that some of the light is absorbed. The bigger and thicker you make that lens, the more light you're losing. Astronomers want to get all, they want to see the faintest objects they can. So they want, they want all the light. They don't want to lose some of the light. You know, even if it's only 10% of the light, that's still a big chunk when you're looking at something relatively faint. You're losing a lot of the light just traveling through the lens. Again, something you really can't get around. Only way to do it is to get a lens to make the lens thinner and thinner. Finally, or two more, sorry, a large lens, it's glass, right? It gets kind of heavy. And how can you hold it? Well, right around the edges. Can't put anything in front of it or behind it to hold it, to support it, like I could a mirror. A mirror I can hold from the back and put you know, all the mechanism I want underneath it to hold it. If it's a lens, all I can do is hold it by the edge. So if you hold lens, if you hold a lens just by the edge, it's also going to want to sag and bend as you're turning that telescope and you're pointing here and you're pointing here. That lens tends to distort. So you can only support it from the edge. You can't keep it in a very good shape and you can't support it at all, only the edges. So you're only supporting it from the edges. It's going to deform and change its shape. So if you tried to make one that was, you know, three meters across, a good piece of glass three meters across, as you turn it in different angles, it's going to bend and not be a very good optical surface anymore. So that's reason number three. And number four is that if you want to make it a good, for a good optical telescope, that mirror or lens has to be very smooth and has to be ground to exactly the right shape. So what you do, what you have to do with the lens is you've got to grind this side has to be perfect because the light has to go in enter on this side. This side has to be a perfect shape because the light has to exit on that side and that's what causes the light to focus. If you don't do those two, if you don't do both of those right, then the, teles- then the lens is not going to be useful and you're going to have to start over again in building a telescope. A mirror, you've only got to worry about one surface. You have just a mirror and light is reflecting off of it. It doesn't matter what the back looks like. It could be pitted and marked and whatever else, it doesn't matter. 
You can put all your support mechanism there. The light never sees the back of the mirror. It only sees the front side of the mirror. It doesn't matter what the back of your bathroom mirror looks like, right? If you ever take it off, what is it? It's just a solid surface. It's nothing, nothing special. It doesn't need to be. A lens has to be, you know. Try doing a solid surface on you know, the inside of your eyeglasses. You're not going to see too much. So that's one of the problems with lenses, that you do need two acceptable surfaces as compared to one for the mirror. So here's the different types. Let's go back to reflecting telescopes. Those are some of the advantages or some of the disadvantages slash advantages between the reflecting and refracting telescopes. But there's a couple different, different ways we can focus the light coming from a telescope. First one I told you originally was the prime focus. And that's just, that's the natural focus. That's where the light wants to go. So your light comes into the mirror, reflects back off, bounces back up to a focal point. The problem again, I said, how are you going to look at it? You actually can. You actually can look at, look at this. You can put a detector there. Some of the old telescopes, and I don't think it's done much anymore, but even the, two, the Mount Palomar, the big 200 inch, which is the largest telescope in the world for a long time, actually had a mechanism up here with a cage where an astronomer could ride. So you could actually ride at the prime focus of the telescope with your instruments. Be it awful cold at night, because you're up in the, you know, can't, everything in the observatory has to be cold. I mean, it's all open to the air to even equalize the temperature, so it'd be awful cold, but you could actually ride up there. Now, a lot more of the modern telescopes you'd put, if you were going to do the prime focus, you'd put an instrument pack there. You are blocking off some of the light. No matter what you do in a reflecting telescope, whether you use the prime focus or use a mirror to bring the light to a better focus, better area to look at, you're going to be blocking some of the light. So it, wor it works. It won't work for a, big for a little telescope. If you've got a little 6 or 8 inch telescope, you can't put in much of anything in the way because you're going to be blocking it. You need a very tiny mirror that's blocking only a minimal part. If you're talking about a mirror that is you know, a couple hundred inches ac across, I'm not going to block all that much of its light. I'm going to block you know, a very t couple percent of its light, not very much. So it's comparable to doing you know, these other equipment. So that's a prime focus. The Newtonian focus you see in some telescopes. Newtonian and Cassegrain you see most common in like amateur telescopes. And Newtonian brings the light off to the side. So you look at an IP, you look at the telescope to the side of it. Makes it relatively easy to see. You can usually position that pretty well. And all it does is it uses a little mirror here that instead of that light reaching the prime focus, it's diverted and goes off through to the side and goes off to the, to the eyepiece at this point. The Cassegrain focus, see here, does the same thing except here in the Newtonian you tilt the mirror on an angle to kind of bring it off to the side. Here you just send the light straight back where it came from. So the light comes in, goes back up, hits this mirror, goes back down. And you put a, just drill a little hole in that mirror. Doesn't need to be very big. And doesn't matter much because no light was getting in there in the first place if you have to put a little mirror in the front. So it doesn't, doesn't affect anything. Just puts a little hole in the mirror. And then you let the light come out through that. And you can put an eyepiece down here or an instrument to observe. The advantage of that one is that the telescopes get shorter and shorter. If you can see, look how much the blue light, how much the light is bouncing around inside. It gets focused while it's traveling through that. So you can see telescopes. Um, 
An 8-inch telescope, telescope. telescope using a Cassegrain focus is only about that big. It doesn't need to be very large. An 8-inch new, Newtonian telescope is going to be, you know, arm's length or a little bit more because you're not, you're not bouncing the light quite as many times back in here. If you go back to a refracting telescope for an 8-inch, you're probably going to have it, I'm going to say 15 or 20 feet tube. Maybe not quite, maybe 12, 15 feet, I'm thinking a little bigger, but it's going to be big. You know, I'm not going to be able to do this and reach the ends of it. And that's just because there the light has to come straight down and that's it. So it does shrink the size of the telescope. So you can imagine how big a, you know, a gigantic telescope would be if you could do a lens the size of the room like some of the largest, largest telescopes that exist, largest uh, reflect, reflecting telescopes that exist. Now the other one that astronomers use, use often actually has two, two mirrors. So sort of bounces the light up, brings it back down, and then sends it off to the side. And it's set up so that that light then goes off into a separate, the Nazmuth focus or the Coudet room, so it goes off. What this is used for is when astronomers use very, very heavy instrumentation. Because your light, the light then just travels off and then goes into the room to be focused. So it actually goes straight off into another room. And then it's observed there. Most instruments, you can put a little camera, you can attach that here, you can attach that here. Some instruments that astronomers use can be as big or bigger than the telescopes. You can't really stick them on the telescope and still be able to turn that telescope and follow different objects in the sky. So this is one way to get around that. You don't actually have to attach anything. You can just send the light off to the instrument which is actually sitting on the ground. You just have to have it balanced so that this would be sent off constantly to the same space. Computer control nowadays makes that very easy. You can just keep sending, adjusting the mirror to send it to the, keep the light going into the same spot. So those are a couple different kinds of reflecting telescopes that are used. All are still used to, su- to some extent depending on exactly the mechanism of the telescope. I said the prime focus is probably the rarest anymore. But other ones depends. For example, this one, I said you could put a camera here. As it gets heavier and heavier, this gets worse and worse. You start putting a lot of drag on it and trying to pull your telescope in different directions than where it wants to go. Larger instruments can go on the Cassegrain because it's right at the bottom of the telescope where all the weight is. It's a little, it kind of balances things a little bit better. This is a little off balance. And for the biggest instruments, you can use this type of focus, which just sends the light way off into another room where it's actually analyzed. Question, sir? Yes? What, what it does is it sends, the light is sent out, so the light goes down, up, back here, and it is sent out. Your instrument isn't actually attached to your telescope. Your instrument could be in another, another mechanism that's actually anchored into your observatory. And then this mirror could then be adjusted so that you're sending out the light to the right point. So that as your telescope turns, this may adjust so that you keep the light going in the same point into that other room. Now, the picture isn't exactly Picture works real good for an amateur telescope. It doesn't for a professional telescope. A lot of this wall doesn't exist. Most professional telescopes, and I'll show you a couple pictures here in a minute, don't have all this. So it looks like it might be tight to focus this light out to the same spot because eventually you're going to hit the walls of this. Most of the professional telescopes don't have a wall of any kind. Does that help? Okay. Anything else? Okay. So here's an example of one. This is the Keck telescope. Keck telescope is a set of, actually it's two telescopes in Hawaii. And these telescopes are 
two of the biggest, they're about 10 meters across. So 10 meters, 10 yard, about 10 yards, about 30 feet. It's a, big, it's a big telescope. If you get an idea of the scale there, there is a man standing in the center of that one. And you see the guy standing there. I'll give you an idea of how big that mirror is. You know, you used to, you know, just looking at the mirror, it just looks like, well, that could be any size. Well, there's a person standing in there to give you a little bit of a sense of scale. Now, these telescopes, as you can see here, as I said, there's a bigger range. You have a prime focus up here. You can have a Cassegrain focus down here. And you can have the Nazmuth focus where this mirror could be adjusted and it would send it out this whole thing would turn with the telescope and then you could go down here and then could even send that light. Once you get it out to the detector here, uh, further out of the telescope, you could actually get it down to the Coudé room if you were using a very big piece of instrumentation. Ah, uh, Mauna Kea, if I recall correctly. What island is that? Oh, that I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Astronomers just like to go visit Hawaii, so that's why they put the telescopes there. Actually not. It's actually, Hawaii is a very good place because when you get up on the mountains there, you're up very high and that's a good place. Astronomers also put their, a lot of big telescopes, and I'll show you one in a minute, down in Chile, in the mountains of Chile. Not quite as fun to go visit as Hawaii, right? And of course, when they're not on the beach, you know, you're not going to find these on the beaches. These are way up in the mountains. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what, I'm not sure off the top of my head which, which, don't know Hawaii that well to be able to tell you which island it's on. But that's an example of one of the large telescopes. Again, 10 meters across. That's a very big mirror. Now, if you look at the pattern of the mirror, you can see down here, it's not really, it's actually not a round mirror. It's actually done in segments. It gets very hard to build a giant mirror. I mean, that's hard to build. A big mirror that's nice and smooth in the perfect shape, it's very hard to do. So actually, the way this, these telescopes, or this pair of telescopes was done, is they're actually in 36 little segments. So it's a lot easier to put 36 pieces together that are much smaller, more manageable, make them in the shape of a hexagon so they all interlock together, like a honeycomb, all interlock together. And then you can use that as your mirror. It's a lot easier to build 36 little pieces than it is to build one gigantic piece. It's a lot cheaper, too to build 36 little pieces than it is to build just one big one of the same size. So this is actually done in segments. And there's two telescopes here that are exactly the same, exactly the same method. And the other thing that astronomers can do with these, having done it in segments, is that you can control each of those segments individually. So nowadays with computer control, you can adjust them to keep the shape of your mirror correct as you turn the telescope. So as I said, you know that big lens, that big mirror, when you're holding it straight up or down, it, does, it holds pretty good. When you start to go like this, to look towards the horizon, what's it going to do? Gravity's going to pull it down. That's a big, heavy mirror. If you have computer control, you can have adjustments, and you can adjust these parts to adjust them back up to keep the shape of the mirror proper wherever you happen to be pointing in the sky. So that's one example. That's the Keck telescope. And I'll look at a couple others here. Let's look at a instrument here. This is, what do we do with the light? So what do we do? I'm going to come back to some telescopes in a minute, but how do we actually save the images? And you're probably familiar with these. You know, they're in what? All the cameras now, all the cameras, all the phones has some type of charge coupled device in it. And it's just like a little computer chip that is able to register the intensity of light that is on it. 
So you might get something like this. You get an intensity and you fill up certain areas. You get nine, nine, nine detections, one, two, four. And you can read that out and turn that into an image. So it just detects how much light is striking each of those. And there can be, you know what? How many, what do you have, a 8 megapixel, 10 megapixel? So how many millions of little dots you have in this whole thing? You can have very many of them in each little millimeter of the device. It's not just you know, one or two. It's all incredibly tiny. So as I said, you know, your little ones in your cameras can have, what are they up to now? Probably up to 20 some megapixels by now, I mean, that you can do. So 20 million pixels in that little, you know, it's just, it blows up to a nice big image, right? But it's a little tiny thing. You've just gotten more and more detail in it. And then you read out that image. You can read that out digitally, which is nice, right? You can look at your picture right away. You know? People remember the old cameras, right? We had to put film in them and you took your pictures and you went and got them developed and hoped they came out. You know, you couldn't just look and say, "Well, I need to take another one. Let me do another one real quick." So you knew whether it came out right or not. You know, somebody blinked. Well, if it blinked now, before you didn't know about it for a week or a month or a year, depending on how long it took you to get your film developed. Now, you know about it instantly and you can take a, take a new picture. Astronomers can do the same thing. You know, they can take their image, they can follow the image as it's going and they can see, their, see it as it's, as it's acquiring. Now prior to this, which would be for astronomers probably back 80s-ish, so probably in the 80s they started using, I know it took yeah, probably about late 70s, late 70s to early 80s they started using the CCDs. Before that it was all regular photography, so it was film. And in fact, most of the astronomical ones used what you called photographic plates. So not film, like you know, this plastic film that you have that you'd put in a camera. They didn't use that. They actually used a glass plate. So like an even older style. And you'd put the film on that. Your, your emulsion would be on that. And that would be what you'd expose to the light. So you can imagine, glass plates, right? So after you've taken all these images, you don't want to trip and fall while you're carrying them to be developed. Right? Glass plates don't do too well when they hit the ground. So here again, nice that you get the images right, right away. The difficulty with some of them is that they do see such small areas. That's one advantage that the photographic plates were that you could take a big picture of a big chunk of the sky all at once. Here you're seeing little sections and you kind of put them together. You have to put multiple CCDs together to actually get a large image of the sky. It looks real good, real good for looking at details, looking, at, looking into the into an object, but not so good is good for looking at very wide areas at this point. So that's just one example there. That's one example of what we use and what we used to use for telescopes. Computer processing, again, is nice. We have all this digital readout. We can sharpen the images. So we can actually do digital analysis of the image and have things that start off like this. And if we can understand what the sky was like and what the object is like, we can take something like this and process it and process it and process it and actually find out a lot more detail about an object than we could. There we get a nice big blur. We've got one object here, right? So one, two, three objects. Not really. You look in more detail. Well, there's those three objects we saw, right? One, two, big here. But now this one is starting to differentiate into others as you can look in more detail. And you can almost see how it's getting elongated. Is that more than one? Well, there's a couple objects. As you can look in more and more detail 
and you know, use computer techniques to actually enhance your images and see much more detail <coughs> than you'd normally see other than you'd normally see otherwise. That's so it's the same image, right? That's the same image. That's the same. You can almost see here, here, here. Those three. One, two, three. One, although it's split into two, two, three. And I'm losing them in the last one, but getting harder to find them there, but probably out here, maybe that way. But it's the same, it should be the same image. It's supposed to be. That last one looks different to me. I'd have to check it. The other, the first three are definitely the same. But as you do it, the idea is the processing will get you a better and sharper image. And that's a good thing because our atmosphere does mess up the images. Our atmosphere does a lot of, causes a lot of problems to astronomical images. So, here's one we know, right? Hubble Space Telescope, we've all seen, launched in, was it 1990? So it's now been, now out, it's outlived its expectancy, what it was originally expected to, to last. It's now, what, over 20, 21 years ago now. Um, still has a few years to go. Probably, depending. It, it can no longer be serviced. Now that the shuttle's down, there's no way to get up to it. So if something were to go wrong with it, there's not a lot that you can do anymore. You can't get back up to it to, to fix it. They were able to do a number of missions while the shuttles were still active. And in fact, you're seeing the bay of the shuttle there. And that may have been, may have been from launch or something when it was being launched. Has a big cover over it, covering the main mirror from getting sunlight. So that sort of shields it a little bit. It'll eventually, they won't leave it up there because of the danger of it coming back down. It's, from my understanding is that any object that's put up there now, they have to have a plan for it when it's the end of its life. And one of the things they can do is if they leave enough fuel on it, they can control where it's going to land. So when this ends its life, they can plan a splashdown where it's going to crash right into the Pacific Ocean. So won't be near, well, it would not be near, you know, like Skylab back in the 70s hit Australia. They couldn't control where it was going to go. Hit the western edge of Australia, which fortunately is very deserted. But, yes, sir? How much? I'm honestly not sure. It doesn't take very much. I mean, it doesn't need a lot of fuel right now. It's just enough to maintain it in orbit and maintain its orientation. But when you're ready for it to go, you could send a burst in and send it sort of you know, the way they send the shuttle in. You, send, you fire the rockets to get it going in and you can tell you know, the shuttle always lands wherever they want it to, whether it's Florida or California. Well, they can do the same thing here, but instead of timing it to land in California, wouldn't be good, they can do it to land in you know, the middle of the Pacific Ocean, big deserted area. Yes, ma'am? Pro probably not. It would probably just be. It would probably just sink then, because it would sink. It would sink immediately. You wouldn't be able to catch it coming. There'd be no way to catch it with the force of it coming in. Unfortunately, it would be would be nice. How large is it? Well, the mirror itself is about two and a half meters across. The telescope. I don't know the entire length. If you're familiar with the shuttle, it fits just in the shuttle cargo bay. So I don't know the dimensions of myself. It's, it's big. I mean, it would, it would survive re-entry into the Earth very easily. So if it were to come down, you know, it could, it could do quite a bit of damage. Yeah? I saw the Isaacs film where they mm -hmm. recorded going up and working on the crack right. in the um, And that was kind of a good, like, showed you kind of a scale. Yeah, you don't have, but I mean, if you think about it, the mirror, so this size would be about, the mirror down here would be about two and a half meters. Well, a very tall person would be about two meters. So two meters is up about there. 
and this is bigger than that. So you're talking a very tall person just for the length this way, and it's going to be a lot longer this way. Yes, sir. Do you have okay? Twenty-four feet, fourteen feet in diameter. So it's twenty-four in length. So it's it's big. And it's heavy. That mirror is a big, heavy piece. That would make now some pieces would burn up in the atmosphere. You probably wouldn't have to worry a lot about the solar panels. They just break off and burn up in the atmosphere. But the main hunk of it would make it through. But any to any object that's put up in space now is supposed to have that sort of plan as to how to get it back, how to get it back to Earth, so you don't have things like we've had some of these satellites that have come back recently that you know they can't control. Where is it? Where is it going to land? We don't know. So they're supposed to either leave enough fuel or be designed so that they completely break up in the atmosphere and are not a, not a hazard. Question? Yeah, no, I've seen a picture of mm -hmm. all the satellites. Just, it's like mm -hmm. a whole other layer around our Earth of just... There's a lot, and it's, it's not as dense as some of the pictures make it look because there's a lot of space out there. You have to take into account how much space there. When you condense it down, it makes it look a lot more crowded than it. It makes it look like there's no room to put something. It makes it look like there's no room to put another satellite up there. There's a lot of room. Everything is a lot bigger to scale than it looks. But there, there's a lot of junk up there. There is a, there is a lot of junk up there. And anything that is in a low orbit will come back down. Things that are in low orbits that were put up like by the shuttle, the space telescope, those things will come back down. You know, the space station would have a very limited life. It's not very high up above the atmosphere. Now some of the satellites that are way up in the atmosphere, they're not coming. They're way up. They're not coming back down. There's things that are at 20,000 20, miles, you know, in geosynchronous orbits. They're, they're not going to come back down. Not unless you made them come. You'd have, to, you'd have to specifically try to make it. They're up in a very high orbit. So, all right. So that's the space telescope. What was the other one? And here's what you can see with the space telescope. Once they got it fixed, right? You heard it had some issues early on, uh, where the mirror was actually ground slightly off shape, and not even that. I mean, it was minuscule. It was very hard, would have been very hard to tell, but because Hubble Space Telescope can see so much more detail, here's a ground-based picture of, of it. Look at the detail you can see with Hubble. Can you see how much more detail you're seeing? That that is a lot, more, lot higher resolution. We'll talk about resolution on Thursday, but you can see a lot more detail there. And we can understand more about the objects. You can see how everything just gets blurred together at the center. Well, here you're looking, here's the center, and then you're zooming into the center, and you're seeing all that detail that would have just been completely blurred out in the Earth-based observing. That's all due to our atmosphere. Our atmosphere does that. If you didn't have to look through our atmosphere, you could wipe the atmosphere off the Earth, astronomy would do very well. We wouldn't breathe very well, but just telescopes would, would work wonderfully. If you could set a telescope up on the moon, that would be great. There's no atmosphere there. But when you have to look through our atmosphere, it causes problems. It causes it issues in being able to see, in being able to see through it. And Hubble does not have that, have that problem. And hopefully its replacement, if it makes it through all the budget issues, is due to go up and due to even bigger in a few years. And that's the Webb telescope is going to be even a little bit bigger than the Hubble and have, you know, what we've learned from Hubble we can apply to that. You know what, I don't want to get to that. So let me see. Actually, that's about about 20 of. I'm going to let you get questions, and I'm going to go ahead and let you go. James Webb Telescope, yes. Now again, there's been issues as to whether the administration is going to cut that completely and whether it's ever, it's, it's in the planning stages still. It's never been put, it has not been built yet. Yeah. I had a question about the, uh, sure. the uh, article. Mm -hmm. uh, 
that be on something we already learned about or can't even? No. It can be any I prefer astronomy. If you find another good science one, I don't rule out anything else in science. You know, if you find someone someone once did a real good robotics article. Okay, that's great. So I will go ahead and let you go so I can run over to the downtown campus square and we'll pick this up and finish it up on Thursday. Make sure I get the right date.